This is an old live taping of the Katie Helper Show that we did with Matt Karp, historian and writer. What's really cool about this episode is that even though it's a little old, it's a vintage, it's from the time of the Kansas special election, but you're going to find that it's super applicable to tonight's Georgia election. And Matt really explains what's wrong with the Democrats, what's wrong with their approach, and he refers to the Democratic vision as woke Goldman Sachs. And since Matt is a historian, he makes a lot of connections between history and today's politics. And he says he's inspired by the overthrow of the ruling class that we find throughout history. He talks about Frederick Douglass and about the use of the refrain, Bernie would have won. Matt's also kind of an expert in stats and voting patterns, so you're definitely going to want to listen. He also goes through various coalitions, talks about solidarity versus philanthropy. It's really one of the best episodes, so really excited to be dropping it tonight, given the Ossoff failure in the Georgia election. Please welcome to the stage Matthew Carr, Princeton professor, historian, author, author of, of this vast southern empire. Um, slaveholders at the helm of American foreign policy, also writes for places like Jacobin and the Nation, and his probably most recent um, accomplishment is that he was retweeted by the Reverend Jesse Jackson. So, I mean, an article he wrote was retweeted. An article he wrote. It would be funny if you had made a D-I-C-K joke and he retweeted that or something. Not that you make those, but, right. It was already the best day of my life, so yeah. it's okay. Okay. So, can you talk to us, Matt, first of all, about you. I want to I want to do a history of you, right? How about we do a history of the historian? What made you a historian? What made you study history? And um, what is the connection between your historical writing and your journalism, which has really been, at least over the last year, focused on electoral uh, um, voting patterns, numbers, and I don't, I don't even know the word to use because that's how bad I'm with these stats. What do you call it? Statistics? <laughs> it's, it's actually pronounced statistics. Statistics. Okay, statistics. you see, I told you. Thank yeah. you. Keeping me woke. Keeping um, me those. Yeah, uh, no, there aren't many statistics in that book. Uh, yeah, well, the, exactly. the real connection is that I, um, uh, I finished this in January <laughs> of 2016, and it, hey, it looked like there was a socialist who uh, was uh, leading in New Hampshire, and I thought, well, I have a little bit of time here, um, so uh, that sounds interesting. Let me, uh, I've been spent like 12 years of my life uh, pondering uh, the career of Jefferson Davis. Uh, I wanted to die. I needed something to lift my spirits a little bit, uh, and I think the Bernie Sanders campaign came along at the right time. So that was when I sort of poured, poured my, you know, uh, at least my writing interest into, into, into Bernie. So any connection or any continuity between what you write about? Okay, I mean, to be serious for a minute, yeah, I mean, I think... You have 60 seconds. Okay, I mean, I think uh, to the extent that this book, okay, this is sort of a long shot, but this book is about um, the slaveholders who were in command of the American government for the, you know, really for the eight first 80 years of uh, the American Republic. And it especially concentrates on the, the 20 years before the Civil War. I mean, and this was a true ruling class. You know, these slaveholders controlled the presidency. You know, the cabinet had disproportionate power over Congress, the Supreme Court, everything. We sort of know about that. The book makes various arguments about how they also controlled American foreign policy, and they manipulated and directed that policy in order to sort of sustain uh, slave property and support fellow slaveholding regimes in the hemisphere, oppose anti-slavery uprisings, slave rebellions, et cetera. Uh, one thing that's, you know, the book doesn't really get to this, but the politically relevant part here that spending so much time on this ruling class and just remembering that this ruling class was overthrown. And to me, that's a, that's a continual source of tremendous inspiration when I think about American history. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to be completely naive and triumphalist about the American Civil War and its aftermath and the, you know, the failure, you know, the sort of uh, the retreat from Reconstruction. You know, we could do a, you know, a whole other show on that. But that the slaveholding class, the slave power was defeated uh, democratically and then militarily. And uh, I don't know, I find that uh, an inspiring reminder uh, even in the dark times that right. we are in today. Nice. I mean, I, th I was sort of like pushing at that in that Douglas piece too. Yeah. That was kind of the same sort of thing. So if Frederick Douglass didn't give up, you know, we have no license to. Right. Fre and so can you tell us about your Frederick Douglass piece? Was this because, do you, f I don't know if this came out before Trump's 
praise him for the great work he's doing. Was that was this piece why he said that, or was was your piece in response to that? Trump obviously knew that I had like this draft that had been like you know bouncing around an email since October, right, right. and then no, I was actually really annoyed when he came on he and sort you. of and he learned who Frederick Douglass was uh, and tried to place a phone call to him. Uh, you know, he, I, I, I don't know if he got Frederick Douglass on the record, but it seemed like he had a really illuminating conversation with Frederick right. Douglass. Uh, yeah, no, that was annoying because I was like, oh, I've been, I've been, I was going to, I was going to, uh, I wanted them to post it like right away. I wanted it to be super topical. Right. Um, but yeah, no, I've been working on that for a long time because I mean, I actually honestly do think that Douglass, who the most, I think, uh, important stage, influential stage of his career in the 1850s, the same, uh, moment that the slave power was at its height. Uh, the kind of power of reaction in America was arguably at one of its heights. Uh, and Douglas, sort of, his role as a sort of crusading editor and, uh, you know, leader of the resistance, no hashtag, right. uh, uh, is uh, his words in terms of thinking about how to build a coalition that can defeat uh, uh, our modern day uh, ruling class is are, are, are really relevant. And especially his refusal to sort of give in to paralysis and despair, uh, you know, uh, which is all too common in certain sections of the sort of liberal uh, media sphere after the election, for sure. And for people who haven't read the piece, which they really should, it was in The Nation, and we know it's they should because uh, Jesse Jackson retweeted it. Uh, can you just share with people what the kind of takeaways are um, from what Frederick Douglass did? Yeah, I mean, I mean, just building off what I said before. I mean, look, I mean, Douglass, uh, you know, uh, if you read uh, Douglass's uh, newspaper column, say, you know, he, he gives this great speech after in early 1857, James Buchanan's president uh, from Pennsylvania, but his Democratic Party is almost entirely uh, dominated by slaveholders. Uh, the slave power is the ruling force in his administration. That he's collaborated with, you know, Chief Justice Roger Taney of Maryland to sort of push through this Dred Scott ruling, which says, you know, famously, uh, you know, uh, uh, black Americans have no rights, which a white man is bound to respect. That there's no ability to prevent slavery from expanding to the territories. This extreme reactionary decision. It, to be honest, it does. I mean, we'll see. I mean, maybe now with Gorsuch in there, they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna try to match Dred Scott. But you know, the most reactionary decision in American history, and you know, devastating. And you know, they can completely control all the branches of government. And Douglas gives an amazing speech in response to to this to this decision, which is obviously devastating to him personally and his you know anti-slavery movement. And it's you know, it's just it's what, what's notable in contrast to so much of the dialogue today is how little ground he's willing to yield and how much he insists on. The capacity to sort of use right-wing overreach to build uh, a democratic movement that can overcome uh, that right-wing power. I mean, the reason I wrote the piece is there's a new edition of like a portable Frederick Douglass that uh, Penguin put out. It's you know it's pretty cheap. Uh, and what's cool about it is it includes a lot of that journalism. We know Frederick Douglass, a lot of us to the extent that we n you know I mean Donald Trump knows him personally. He's he's doing so many great things. Uh. But um. But to the extent that we meet Frederick Douglass like in, in our high school curriculums or in college or whatever, it's usually the narrative. It's usually his right. life, which is powerful and, you know, it's amazing and, is, you know, he's a great rhetorician and all that. But I think what's cool about this new collection is it really includes a lot of his journalism because that's what Douglass was. He was a political animal. He was not just a kind of great soul who escaped slavery and talked about how horrible it was. He was somebody who organized. He, he orated and he organized. He worked with other – collaboratively with all sorts of different people in the anti-slavery movement, white and black. And he, for, he, you know, he was instrumental in some ways. Even though he was critical of the Republican uh, Party in the 1850s as it came together to destroy slavery, he ultimately supported it. Um, I think offered a sort of, uh, in some ways, offered a kind of vanguard of that movement. Uh, and it, his journalism is really repays reading as much as anything else he wrote. So I wanted to skip forward a little okay, bit. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then, but we're gonna. Don't worry. We're gonna thread the needle. So Matt, I wanted to talk to you about some tweets actually that you wrote. Because tw Twitter is is the window, I say, into the, into the where the soul would be of the media. Um, in your case, you actually do have a soul, so it's especially exciting. But you were tweeting about um, the special election, so you tweeted a bunch about the special election that just happened in Kansas, and I get the sense that you felt a you felt so all sorts of feels about it. Um, do you want to read some of your tweets about it, or do you <laughs> yeah, want me to? Uh, is this like the Jimmy Fallon show or something? Yeah, mean yeah. tweets. Like mean me tweets yeah. about Kansas. <laughs> yeah. Um, you wrote, imagine... Maybe my harshest owns of Tom Perez. This is totally, really... Yeah. yeah. We should have a, a, an own-off yeah. about Perez. So imagine what Republicans would have done if the DCCC had given Thompson a few bucks and nationalized the wait, race. Wait, do you want to, like, 
put this in context? Oh, yeah, 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 sure. Okay. You know what? Why don't you put in context? Okay. You're the historian. Well, look, okay, yeah, there was a, I mean, you guys know about the special election in Kansas uh, the other night, right? Uh, people seem to know about that. Uh, Wait, so. that's such bad pedagogy. You're always, you can't do that? What? Do you do that to your students? No, I assume an enormous level of sophistication because that, no one's you want to. You can't say yeah, that because yeah. then no one's going to say, sorry. No, oh, that's true. Good point. Good point. I no, like I have no idea. What's Kansas? What's Kansas? Is that, a, is that a territory or a state? Um, Unclear. Yeah. Uh, no. Th so there was a there was a special election in Kansas last night. Uh, a Democrat guy who was actually a Bernie guy initially said he was inspired to run because of Bernie. Uh, and he, you know, his deep red district is literally the home of Coke Industries. Um, it's one of the darkest, reddest districts in America, around Wichita, the suburbs, rural area in South Kansas. Uh, and anyway, yeah, it went like for Trump by thirty. The Democrat in this race lost by six. Um, so it's a huge swing. Um, but I mean, the controversy to some extent was. Okay, the, the National Party, the Congressional Committee, uh, didn't really support this Democrat at all, financially or otherwise. And there were all sorts of like little, you know, probably not very illuminating Twitter arguments about, you know, what should or could have been done. For me, what's relevant about this is um, not that I know so much about like Wichita politics or that I, you know, have a, like a concrete sense of the fourth district of Kansas, but that the way that people were sort of justifying the, oh, the Democratic Party was really shrewd to avoid this race because if anybody knew that this candidate was a Democrat, then they would never vote for him, which is just like, what? I mean, first of all, he's a Democrat. Every, I mean, this is, that was the point of the cruise treat. Every Republican, when they're running against a Democrat, will say, this is a Democrat. Right. So it's just like, it, it's just, just on the surface, it's idiotic. Second, uh, this idea that the Democratic brand or the idea of the Democratic Party is so toxic is so unable to sort of relate or connect to anybody's life in you know outside of a certain bubble is exactly what's wrong with the d with you know what what went wrong among many things for the Democratic Party this uh, last time around. So I just found that to be. I mean, it's like. And who was making that argument? Uh, you know, the same pundits who are like Hillary's will you know win right, Michigan by right, you know, right. twenty points. But I'm actually surprised that they would be so um, honest about how terrible the Democratic I mean, brand is. Look, look, okay, being stepping on. Stepping off the polemic for a little bit, it's like, yeah, there are some races where, you know, you want to emphasize local issues versus national right. issues. Like, there's, it's politics, is politics. It's all about timing and geography and whatever. But, um, yeah, uh, the idea that, you know, supporting, giving grassroots or financial support, you know, without, like, making a big hubbub about it uh, right. to a candidate – uh, would inherently tar that candidate with your own toxicity is is bizarre. Uh, I mean, the one guy was like, "Oh, the Democrats need to fly under the radar. That's how they can, you know, that's how they can pull this off." It's like the Democratic Party is like literally its strategy for the based on this for the midterms is like exiling itself in a uh, quiet car on the Northeast Corridor train to Rahway or something. Right. That's like all they want to do. And th the larger point though is about their strategic focus. This Kansas race. This uh, Montana race, which is the same thing, has not gotten a lot of support. Again, it's a Bernie guy who's like for healthcare, single payer, da 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 da, uh, and he's uh, has had very little, if any, media or national support. But they're pouring everything into the Georgia suburbs because they think it's a winnable race. So there's like a, we could argue about tactics or whatever. But to me, it says something about the kind of coalition they want to build. They want a coalition, just like they said during the election that's grounded in the rich suburbs because that's the kind of party they want. They want, as as Eris was saying, they want a party of, um, you know, of, of woke Goldman Sachs. They want, um, that's that's the kind of, if they have that, if they have those voters in their coalition, they have the policies that those voters want. And I think, you know, that's troubling. And then they can pretend that they have to have those policies, right, because they have to represent their constituents as opposed to what I think the truth is, which is a combination of both, but that they want those policies. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, they, I mean, they say, oh, you know, the, you know, vo voters in suburban Georgia aren't going to go for Medicare for all. You right. know, they're our, they're part of our coalition. We can't lose. Right. I mean, it look. If you, it go, for me, it goes back to the 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 twenty sixteen election. This is my like little two two theories of um of of uh, two coalitions for the Democrats. That if you're just trying to look neutrally, and I know probably some people here, some listeners are kind of just like, why would we even be talking about the Democrats? They're so useless. Other people would be like, no, you know, it's all about the Democrats. Leaving those arguments aside, just kind of neutrally trying yeah, to think sure. about what this party is about, whether you like it or don't like it. Two states that. The Democrats really overperformed in 2016. This is a way of encapsulating the kind of fork in the road, I think, for the party, were uh, Virginia and Nevada, right? Very different, co both states, you know, Hillary Clinton held 
uh, consolidated, did better than expected. She won, you know, three to f around three to five points in each state. Um, both states, in some ways, uh, very superficially, uh, from the perspective of the media, in some ways have some similarities. They have very large, you know, non-white populations. Uh, you know, it's about Nevada's about 62% white, Virginia's about 67% white. So they're diverse. Um, uh, but the coalition that supported Clinton is incredibly different. In Virginia, her, uh, you know, obviously we know, yeah, like, you know, uh, People who aren't white didn't vote for Trump, like, at all. So we know that. That's not, that's not, that's the commonality. But in Virginia, voters who made over 100,000 went for Hillary by something like uh, 11 points, like a really huge surge. She won, you know, Fairfax. She won False Church. I, I guess I wrote about this. Yeah, already. yeah. That's yeah. I was actually going to say, okay. can you, no, 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 but it's good you did okay. it. It was seamless. Okay. I was going to say. Oh, now, now the seams are out. Yeah, I yeah. know. I just right. uh, exposed it. I turned yeah. it inside out. No, but I was going to say that. What's interesting is I want, and you're going there already, but how this kind of, what, what we're seeing now with the special election in Kansas, also with the DNC race, right, is I think a really interesting lens to measure how much the Democrats actually have in taken away any of the lessons of uh, the well election. Well, I mean, they have. They're, they, they've taken, I mean, well, okay, well, let me just, let me just finish yeah. that little, the and, and Virginia, Nevada thing, just try to, and I'll he try wrote, to wrap and it he wrote up. A no, 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 I'm not pushing yeah. you. Stay oh, yeah, there. Yeah. Don't yeah. go anywhere. Oh, okay. Don't go anywhere. I'm, I'm just making anywhere. a, I'm just wrapping it up. It's just you up. and me. It's just yeah, us. Yeah, I know. Don't. We're here. Uh, I'll wait for you, Jack, <laughs> okay. or whatever. What is she saying? Okay. Titanic? <laughs> it's not very auspicious, because she bounced. Okay. Rose. Fair. So, so you wrote a great piece. This is one of the best things I read during the entire election season. Um, and that includes stuff that uh, that I wrote myself, so that's really, that's a big, big, <laughs> just kidding. Um, I'm not. Okay, so Fairfax County was a piece that you wrote for Jacobin. Fairfax County, USA, and the subhead is Hillary Clinton won suburbs in record numbers, but her campaign failed to mobilize workers of all races. So you look at the, you kind of go beyond the just racial, uh, ethnic, education, uh, economic analysis that people did in these, like, discrete spheres, right? Actually, the whole article is basically is one sentence. Class yes. is greater than race. Repeated. No, right, but you don't actually say that. For about two thousand words. You no, over and over again. You do say though that. Um, <laughs> no, no, it's you don't separate those two things. Right, 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 right. Exactly. So you say that um, you look at for at the kind of the difference between how Hillary did and Obama did, and you note that Clinton ran nine points ahead of Obama's twenty twelve tally among voters earning more than a hundred thousand dollars. This is in, this is in, um... Yeah, yeah, I mean, she, this is everywhere. I mean, like, Virginia's was a symptom of something much larger, that this was a conscious decision on the part of the Clinton campaign facing Donald Trump to say, okay, we're going to double down, we're going to win the Republican moderates in the rich suburbs who have the nice lawns, who read David Brooks, and they're appalled by Trump, and uh, let's, uh, let's, let's, like, appeal to the Trump's disgusting temperament, and my sort of many years of experience in government, in sort of, and relatively moderate um, sort of profile to some extent, uh, you know, and it, it really didn't work enough because they didn't get nearly enough of the voters they were hoping to get to actually win the election right, the because Republicans hate Hillary Clinton, so it was kind of a dumb strategy. But oh, that, but sorry. but they did Not get a lot. Ball. They did get a lot of. They did a lot better in the J Atlanta suburbs, in the Nashville suburbs, in even in the Milwaukee suburbs right. where they lost Wisconsin horribly, but they still did better in the rich Milwaukee suburbs because this was this was. I mean, it's not just the Clinton campaign. It's also, like, what the Democratic kind of party has become and sort of the way it has started to communicate itself to voters over the course of the past um, uh, over the past uh, 20 years. But it's become much more legible for richer people and much less uh, appealing uh, for, 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 um, for uh, lower-income people. And, yeah, and that means both – that means working-class people of, 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 of all sorts of races. I mean, the argument of that piece was – not just that, like the white working class didn't vote uh, for Clinton. It's, it was also about how um, uh, you know black uh, working class turnout was really low in places like Milwaukee, and there was some really good reporting on this, actually, even in the Times, yeah, about I know. people saying like, Crazy. "Why? What's in it? What's in it for me in this election? Like, what does Hillary Clinton have for me? You know, right. uh, the kind of temperament appeal." knock against Trump isn't going to do it for somebody in uh, Milwaukee. Or there was that guy who had been in jail. I don't know if you remember from the New York Times piece. And he basically blamed the Clintons for, like, the, the carceral state uh, in that same 
piece. I right, was right. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's, 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 there's yeah, all yeah, sorts of history yeah. with Clinton. But I mean, I think it was, I mean, I read it as about the, a strategic sure. decision. They were like, we can afford to lose some of these voters because right. we're going to run up the score in the suburbs. And okay, so well, go Ed Rendell, can yeah. I just quote uh, Ed yeah, Rendell? Okay, this is the, yeah, this is like the er quote, yeah. Ed Rendell, by the way, is like the guy who says everything that the Democrats think, but don't say out loud. Yeah. I love guys like that. Me too. He's like the worst. And he like sends, he's like covered up for judges who sent kids to jail for money. Anyway, he's a he's a he's a prince. So he said for every he's one like a slave. I mean, th okay, Ed Rendell's not a slaveholder. He does not own slaves. Ed Rendell is like a slaveholder in that when I'm studying the slaveholders, one of the things that is very satisfying is that whenever you want them to say something really ghoulish to establish your point, they'll say something even more ghoulish than that. Right. So uh, y they they it's don't hide anything. They don't yeah. hide their vision of slavery in a world riven by you know racial hierarchy and bound labor to infinity. Uh, they never hide it. Neither does Ed Rendell hide his uh, prejudices, right. which are not in favor of slavery so far as we right, know. Right, right, unclear. For every one of these blue, so this is what he said, for every one of these blue-collar Democrats Trump picks up, um, and he, this guy's a former Pennsylvania governor, by the way, so for every one of these blue-collar Democrats Trump picks up, he will lose to Hillary two socially moderate Republicans and independents in suburban Cleveland, suburban Columbus, suburban Cincinnati, suburban Philadelphia, suburban Pittsburgh, places like that. So that kind of lays out where he thought the Clinton campaign yeah. would be going. and that worked. Okay, so okay, let's look at a place where that worked. That worked in Virginia. Like, they won. They ran up the score in Fairfax. They crushed uh, in Falls Church. They did well in Loudoun County. If you know, these, these are all the sort of, like, very wealthy, um, you know, ring counties in northern Virginia. You know, you know, lots of postgraduate degrees, lots of six-figure incomes. They did really, really well in those places. And so that's the Virginia model. Just because I, I want to I wanna go back. I feel like we left this hanging Chad out there. Oh, I don't like yeah. Virginia, Nevada. Like People are like, what's he going to say about Nevada, though? What's happening in Nevada? Oh, yeah, you're right. Everyone's so, okay. Okay, so there's the Virginia model. That's the Fairfax County USA model. Actually, did you want to, did you have one no, more No, 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 just okay. that the summary from that, the takeaway, right, is that the places that Hillary surpassed Obama were the wealthiest places. Were the wealthy, like overwhelmingly white, wealthy right, places. Okay. That's where she did well. Okay. And that's, there's a faction of the Democratic Party that just genuinely wants that voting coalition because they want the politics of those people. I mean, there was a guy who was, there was a D.C. reporter who was like, you know, this Kansas race right afterwards, he was like very plugged in to the DCC strategy. And he's like, this Kansas race was, what did he say? It was like, this is batting practice. It's meaningless. The backbone of the Democrats, uh, you know, this, no, the sort of the structural bedrock of the Democratic Party is the suburbs. I right. mean, so I'm not making this up. Like right, this, right. the numbers show it, but Rendell will say it. Right. Reporters, there's reporting on it. It's, it's a real thing. They want the, there's a faction of the party that really wants the Virginia strategy because it, it per the Virginia coalition will support the, the kind of, um, the sort of economic policy that they really want. Did okay, you coin that term, the Virginia strategy? No. Oh. Yeah, I just, well, yeah, just now. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Three seconds ago. Yeah, okay, yeah. you weren't missing history. But Nevada is very different, and Nevada is like this weird exception in the sort of morass. I mean, Jane McAlevey was on the say. show, so she's great, and she was talking about that, and nobody's really talking about this, or if they, maybe, okay, whenever, I, I can't believe I just said that, nobody's talking, why isn't anybody talking about Except this? Except the Katie House <laughs> Whenever show. somebody's saying that, uh, people are definitely talking about it, so somebody's talking Not about enough. it, but we're also going to talk about right. it. And Jane McAlevey's an organizer. So. Jane McAlevey's a labor organizer who spent, you know, uh, several years out in Nevada organizing hotel workers, uh, sorry, uh, hospital workers. Um, uh, anyway, and she was talking about how Nevada split blue at every level this year in terms of uh, not just went for, not just went decisively for Clinton in a huge Trump wave year, but also at the local level, at the state level, Nevada was very strong blue. And what was the coalition in Nevada? It points to a very different path of politics than the Virginia coalition. In Nevada, uh, in, in Virginia, um, uh, in Nevada, uh, sorry, uh, Clinton lost overwhelmingly people making over $100,000 a year. And I think that's in good. Nevada. <laughs> I think that's good, and to some extent. I think that's good because those people are the people that if they're in the coalition, they can't, they, they will deny uh, the things that we need right. in our coalition. If you want things like Medicare for all, if you want things like a job guarantee, they're, they're the haters. Right. So, and, and I mean, okay, look, you want to build a majority, you have to have some woke rich people. That's good. Right. I mean, yeah, I ride the Northeast Corridor. I always stay in the quiet car. So, look, I know what I'm talking about. I know these yuppie people. Yeah. I'm one. But, but look, if you want to build a majority coalition that can give you the Bernie Sanders-style policy, if that's, some if that's something that you're interested in, if that's a project that you believe in, then you need a Nevada-like coalition, which is overwhelmingly working class. I think Bernie, I mean, uh, Hillary won in Nevada. The Democrats won something like people making under 30 grand by like 40 points. 
it was overwhelmingly uh, and again, again, these are this is this is multiracial. This is a multiracial working class. You know, heavily Latino, heavily Asian, Filipino, Black in Las Vegas. Heavily union, even though it's a right-to-work state, there have been remarkable unionizing victories there among casino workers and McAlevey now organizing, had helped organize hospital workers. Um, it's a coalition that uh, points in a very different direction policy-wise, but also kind of politics-wise. Like, who do you try to organize? Who, what messages do you uh, convey to your worker, to your to your voters? Who uh, who do you want on your team? And it's doesn't. I mean, it, to me there's a fundamental tension between the Nevada strategy such as it might exist or such as it might look like on a national scale and the Virginia strategy, which is just um, wait for demographics, like kind of impersonally, and you know, kind of moderate Republicans to sort of eventually just get sick of Trump and put the Democrats back into power without doing anything at all of substance. Right. And uh, so we have the Virginia model and the Nevada model, but we have to also account for the possible McAlevey effect. Yeah, she's that's true. She's a really good organizer, she is right? really, She's really good. She's really Although, good. She, 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 yeah, yeah, she's really good. That's uh, true. What were, what, what were we going to say? Send McAlevey to Wisconsin. Yeah, Wisconsin. Where was – I wasn't McAlevey in Wisconsin. I heard McAlevey didn't visit a union hall in Wisconsin the entire campaign. She probably – the same people who were blocking the um, landing strip for Hillary <laughs> were probably camped out for McAlevey, right. so neither one could access it. I'm glad and you actually got that I'm going to pump McAlevey's book. If you haven't read oh both yeah, of her books. Oh, yeah, No Shortcuts. No Shortcuts, great book. But her account of union organizing, a uh, really blo detailed blah, blah, blah account, uh, not that I actually know anything about this, so I've read one of these kinds of books. But it was a good book. Uh, top five. It's the top yeah, five uh, the ones you have Raising hell, hell raising yeah. expectations yeah. Uh, about, her, about her days in the mid-2000s organizing uh, hospital workers in not just nurses, but all levels of hospital workers in, uh, in Nevada. And winning. Actually winning in a right-to-work state, which is more relevant than ever because we're looking right. at down the pipe at a right-to-work country. And if, and if we if we accept that, oh, now it's right-to-work, unions are completely dead, we give in to that kind of paralysis and pessimism, back to Frederick Douglass, then, um, you know, game over. Because then it really is Virginia coalition or nothing. Right. If you completely give up on labor, if you give up on the possibility of an organized – you know, uh, you know, uh, working class that's fighting for something that it can actually win and believe in. So anyway, that's sure. another that's another pet peeve: people throwing up their hands about the state of labor and right. you know, be serious, be be honest, be uh, understand the obstacles. But I don't get the, the doom and gloom. Yeah, yeah, catastrophizing. Good, good verb. Yeah, you can use it with your students yeah, yeah. right after you don't ask them if they all know something. Yeah, it's always good when you take an adjective and you, and, so you put it and you put an ing on it. Right, exactly. That's good writing. You know yeah. what I hate though? Impactful. Yeah. Or, or impact. Or a noun. Impact even. is not supposed to be a verb. Yeah. Yeah, we let that happen. It's we an were, it's we an a, it's an adjective, right? Impact. No, no, it's not. <laughs> it's, it's, a used a, it's a noun, but it's, it used, a it's having an impact. It's but a now it's, it's a been conjunction. it's been bastardized into a verb. Oh, okay. And I don't like that. Okay. So. You also write something. This is, I think, we really have to talk about. So you're talking about the the whole class. You have a really good response to uh, Nate Silver's analysis, which you think is too kind of segment segmented. <laughs> and um, friend of the show, friend of the show, friend of the show. Okay, FOS, FOTS. So you write. Um, well, Trump has a two percent, two point three six chance percent. He uh, was better. President. He was writer. He was writer. He was closer than anyone else, though, right? Besides, um, oh, on election day, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, yeah. But he right, was. Right, right. I mean, those those guys were so far out in front on how Trump had no chance to win the primary, which I don't know. Anyway. So you write um, that uh, people t talked about education, not income, that guided the electorate somewhat overstates the case, even according to his own data. And you write a look at affluent suburban. Uh, returns on a district and town level suggest that some combination of income, education, culture, and geography, in a word, say it with me now, class, drove Clinton's most dramatic gains. So what is the significance of discussing class beyond our kind of, uh, you know, political... Well, look, I mean, I'm doing, you know, kind of loose and crude thing there, too, because I'm mostly doing it based on income, but it's a little bit of geography. Yeah. But that's all you, you need, have, a little bit, I mean, and then yeah, it becomes uh, more than income. I mean, I don't know. If you want to be academic about it, I mean, class is really a relationship. It's not a structure. That's sort of where I mean. I'm with E.P. Thompson on that to some extent, and I think, uh, and I think what's important and relevant about class in the context of this politics is, do you 
believe, I mean, this is where the Virginia and the Nevada, Nevada coalitions diverge. Do you believe in a politics that musters a class resentment against the, the haves, to some extent, or the oligarchs, or the one percent, uh, however you want to call them? Oligarch. Oligarch. Yeah. What's that accent? Oh, you're doing Bernie, Bernie. Yeah, Okay, got it. it. Yeah, the oligarchs. Yeah, I love when they talk about oligarchs. The Republican Party in the 1850 anti-slavery movement never shut up about oligarchs. We should use that word more. Yeah. Um, Owen oligarch. Yeah, monarchs, aristocrats, do it all. Americans hate that stuff. We, right. we really do. We, we love the royals, but we really hate aristocrats So um, in politics. Mm-hmm. So anyway... Uh, and not personal do you lives, believe yeah. in a class politics that can, in a crude, rough, populistic sense, a, a, at minimum, mobilize, to a certain degree, resentment, but also a kind of just more than resentment, because that just then you're giving yeah. the right wing frame. Uh, mobilize like a justified Frustrate. anger at an outrage at the concentration of uh, wealth, wealth and power yeah. and the sort of, in, in effect, the kind of um, upward redistribution of wealth in this country over the past 30, 40 years. Do you actually believe in a politics that takes aim at that, or do you believe in a politics that like neutralizes that and tries to keep it off the screen? And that's what the professional Democratic Party believes that it can't. I- I- it's torn between a bunch of different people. Some people who just like genuinely don't want that ideologically. Right. Some people who, who think, think that, that can't win. Right. Some people who are trying to think they're trying to hold everyone together, and so they're just really soft and weak about it. Uh, there's a. It's it's really complicated, but. Um, but I, I think if you take that element out, then you you surrender hope for any like serious redistribution, any serious program for universal goods that can that that can be demanded, any hope for rising expectations on the part of people who aren't born into uh, a six figure income. Right. So we have to, guys. Unfortunately, the people who are just listening. Oh no, no, we're s- you're not. Li- remember Jack and Rose. Oh. Titanic. Yeah. We're staying okay. on this ship together. I That's I probably not the I best. I think analogy. I'm an ice cube by now. I know. Yeah. Um, so uh, we, the, our radio listeners are going to have to go, sadly, because it's the end of our radio hour. But go on to the Katie Halper Show Facebook page, and we'll, be tell, we'll tell you how you can listen to the whole thing. And we're not going anywhere. And, guys, if you're listening at home and you want to come by, we're, we're still going to be talking. And then we're doing karaoke afterwards. So that is going to be very, very fun. Long-time listener. Yeah, long-time listener, yeah. So now. First-time guest. Wait, n- so we just go. Now it's just this. Now it's just air. this, and you can curse. Yeah, you can curse. Uh, wait, wait, but wait I a couple minutes. No, you didn't, but wait oh, a couple minutes. Okay, no, no. Yeah. So, um, um, okay, hopefully the, the people have, have transitioned away. But, yeah, give us, give us a couple. I know you've been holding back. He really? c- you curse Sorry. a lot. I know you have been because you curse a lot in your lectures. Okay, so. What, what we've gotten so far is Ed Rendell is a slaveholder. That's yeah, what if there's one takeaway. That's what the radio audience has learned. I know. Oh, my God, I'm screwed. <laughs> no, you're n- he may throw you into jail <laughs> through one of his corrupt judges. Okay, so. Um, you talk about you, what you just said, by the way, I think is so important and it's kind of a mystery to me. And it also makes me feel like I'm in the twilight zone because I always thought that like people saw the difference between appealing to anger in a, in a way that directs it towards, um, the oligarchy and inequality and the powers that be in the corporations versus, uh, telling people to blame, uh, immigrants or Muslims, right? Or the disenfranchised people, right? People, I don't know if they really believe this or if it's a mistake. There really is a sense that because Trump and Bernie Sanders both appealed to, first of all, Bernie Sanders appealed to various uh, populations and among young people, the majority of every demographic. And also, he also appealed to the majority of all ages of to Ar- Arab Americans, which no, nobody talks about. True. Native nobody Americans, too. There you go. You see? So every time, by the way, people say that Bernie didn't get any support from people of color, you should just tell them, that's yes, I agree, if you don't count um, Native Americans or Arab Americans as people. And then you know what you say. That makes you worse than... Uh, Robert E. Lee. Ed Rendell? Okay, yeah. There, same thing, <laughs> okay. exactly. I can't keep track of them. Yeah. Um, so... You, yeah, there's a, sh- no, it's not, oh, actually we're on the, yeah, it's fine, yeah. Uh, okay. F, yeah, okay, don't curse for a couple more seconds, though. A couple more minutes. Okay, in case we're still on the radio. But, yeah, I don't get this. Like, I, maybe, I know I was raised by, like, super lefty reds and everything, and, like, my uncle was a big class warrior, uh, labor organizer, but I always thought that, like, that, we just knew that. Like, you take angry, this is what the labor movement kind of did when they weren't well. being really racist. Okay, but at best, <laughs> at its least racist, like, they're like, okay, you angry people are angry and you feel like you're not getting paid yeah. enough, right? And so here's right. the deal, guys. Don't blame your, like, the comp people who you see as competition, right? Yeah. The black workers, because they're actually your brothers and sisters. I mean, let's be real, brothers. 
uh, well, they weren't that woke on gender that your brothers in struggle, right? Yeah. They are your comrades. Well, they are your right, right. I mean, you, oh, sorry, keep going. No, no, no. Can can you give me? Can I just do the rest well, look, of the show as a monologue yeah. about class? Uh, oh, and <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, no, no. But like. Yeah, go I was just gonna say we don't have to romanticize whatever racial. I you know. I, I no, I, I know you're not. I know I'm not, and you would never do this. Nor would you make jokes about the Holocaust. Well, nor that about I would. Let's be or about interracial dating. Or oh, any you of your great, any that of your greatest good, right? hits. Yeah, that was good, right? greatest hits. I said that every. Gra- Alper's greatest hits. Look, we don't right. have to romanticize like the mid-century labor movement, whatever. Um, to say. Have to, but no. fun. Yeah, okay. but you know, I li- I'm a big fan of romance. You know, that's why that's why I like Titanic so much. Yeah, exactly. Uh oh, <laughs> Matt's wife is in the audience. I just want to say, don't worry. I am very as for for how woke and kind of critical and radical as I am, I do respect the institution. But look, the idea. No, I'm I'm moving on. I'm moving on. Look, you don't have to romanticize like labor struggles past to say. To say one, to say t- a couple things about again, to going back to my little Nevada coalition, Virginia coalition idea, um, the politics of uh, of the Virginia coalition when it comes to something like race, when it comes to something like um, uh, when it comes to re- redistribution generally, because I mean, like, look, let's be give the give the devil the due, um, you know, uh, you know, Tim Kaine, Senator of Virginia, who I think is kind of in some ways a poster, a, a really good poster boy, maybe more fair than Ed Rendell, who's out of politics and is kind of, you know. Quotable everywhere. Tim Kaine, you know, Tim Kaine supports, you know, a $12 minimum wage. Like, Tim Kaine is, like, economically progressive on a few things. And, like, but what what undergirds the politics of somebody like Tim Kaine, in my view, is philanthropy. Is it's it's based on a model of philanthropy. It's based on the model of look, who are the most vulnerable members in society? Who are the people who are most uh, who are who are sort of uh, you know most at risk? Who are the weakest? You know, usually don't put it that way because you're trying to be right, sensitive. Right. But who are the weakest? And who are the people who are most in need of my help? As somebody who can sort of bestow it upon them in a kind of philanthropic or in a in a in a in a, in a, in a sort of charitable, charitable sense, exactly. And, Catherine, don't worry. and don't that's worry. not, I mean, what the labor movement can do, didn't always do, but is certainly has has done at times and is certainly capable of doing, i.e. Jay McAlevey in Nevada, is building on a much different form of politics, which is not a politics of philanthropy, but a politics of just solidarity. And justice. Where it's like, yeah, justice, where it's justice. Sal- where it's justice like, look, you don't approach, uh, you know, a, a healthcare work, yeah. you know, a, like a, a sort of entry-level healthcare worker at a hospital in in um, Nevada and say, oh, you're so vulnerable. Like, can we, how I can we sort pain, of, how yeah. can we negotiate something that will like, you know, g- you know, give you a little bit more, mo- save you money in your taxes or sort of somehow like give you a few more bucks right. to help you get through the day or, or even protect you from like the absolute worst of right-wing racism right. and reaction. Right. That, I mean, that's important. That's good. We should have the minimum of that. And, you know, sometimes we go too far, I think, in ripping on the yeah. Dems for being woke. It's like it's I better agree, that yeah. they're woke now than like the Clinton Dems, you know, yeah, yeah. who are like bad on economics we just don't want woke and not to woke. Cover up. We just don't want the yes, woke. Yes, absolutely. So I, I, I like that they're woke. I, I welcome you. I the woke. Yeah. But yeah, but ultimately it, 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 it's like Tim Kaine will offer a politics of like of like kind of woke rhetoric and philanthropy and death penalty and hide. Yeah, not to mention he's got a bad record on some other things, but and he's not going to regulate the banks. He's not going to do any of that stuff. But uh, but uh, but he fundamentally, the, in terms of, I'm not even talking about policy. I'm talking about like his like style right. of, of, uh, of the style of the kind of Clintonite-ish style of the Virginia Coalition is is about approaching people as okay. There are people in Washington who are legislators who are primarily drawn from the other half of the coalition, which are the the Fairfax County, Loudoun County, you know, lawyers and attorney, you know, lawyers and attorneys, and also lawyers and people who have law degrees and <laughs> no and and esquires and counsel yeah, counselors pro- professionals who are they're the people who like have the skills, they have the human capital, they have the Ivy League degrees or equivalents. They're the ones who can get things done on behalf of the people who are basically kind of like just struggling to get by and right. so therefore we need to you sort of do something for them. And say we whatever kind of policy disagreements are, that's a fundamental difference from a politics of, of labor and of solidarity, which says, look, we're 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 in this together. We actually have common interests. Right. We have we have a mutual desire to line up against oligarchs. Even, you know, you make $78,000 a year, I make $20,000 a year. That's not, uh, we don't need to like eviscerate those differences and pretend they don't exist. But fundamentally in this struggle, we can unite against somebody who's actually picking both of our pockets, who's preventing both of us from, you know, we're both living in a precarious situation where we could be bankrupt tomorrow if one of us gets sick. We both have, you know, kind of uh, economic insecurity when it comes to jobs. And we can fight together for these like basic material things that, that will build then solidarity 
solidarity and a sense of like, and it, fundamentally it's about equality, really. I mean, I would go even beyond solidarity. It's about equality. The Virginia Coalition foresees is a, is a coalition, but it does it's not a coalition of equals. It doesn't foresee equality existing in any kind of material way, in any kind of philosophical, substantive way. The Nevada, the idea of a of a Nevada coalition, a la Bernie, would be, uh, which isn't Bernie, you know, taking Bernie, the Bernie campaign and its strengths and weaknesses out of the equation. Never. The idea of Don't of a Nevada coalition would would build on uh, would build on uh, would, would 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 put equality front and center, like in in, in the deepest sense that we are all in this together as you know as humans and as and as citizens, or um, you know, or as um, you know, people who should be on a path to citizenship, whatever, like. Um, it's, you know, uh, that's the kind of politics that actually are going to be necessary and that can actually challenge power. Because you can't, if, if you have a coalition that's based on philanthropy and then you come up against power, you there's no sort of organized basis to actually challenge right-wing power when push comes to shove. Right. And in a sense, we saw that with uh, the compromise solution of Obamacare. You know, if there was, um, you know, which is which is the kind of the fruit of that kind of coalition, you're always going to get Obamacare's on Obamacare's on Obamacare's, and, and that's like the best. That's right. that's a, that's like the best well, Obama. That's the best that coalition can produce. If you have a politics of solidarity, that's the only thing they can actually get you over the hump. Right, because there's if okay. you have charity. No, 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 no. It's good. I like it. Okay. If you have charity, right? As a there's charity and philanthropy, and then there's rights and justice. And if something's yeah. not a right, they're alienable, right? You, you, oh, ooh, nice. Ooh, I, I, yeah, I like that. I like that. Constitution throwback. Yeah, no, I like the Constitution. I like the Declaration. That's one thing that Thompson actually did in Kansas. I, I mean, I, I I'm like an expert on his campaign in the sense that I googled it at 10:30 last night. Yeah. Um, but I watched a bunch of his ads and I read his website a little bit. I think it's kind of uh, this is an unpopular take. I, I tweeted this too, but like a lot of people on the left are like, uh, you know, since Gar since William Lloyd Garrison, since the abolitionists, they were like, let's burn the Constitution. It's a slaveholder's document. Right. It's bad news. Uh, yeah. Why should we be governed by this 18th century slaveholder's right. document? Okay, historically that's true. Yeah, we don't uh, like the three-fifths clause. As a historian, you know, well, you know that as a historian, that's completely true. But. We should remember somebody like Frederick Douglass by the 1850s said, yeah. you know, look, we can actually use the Constitution. We can claim the Constitution. We can create – we can have an idea of an anti-slavery Constitution. And in fact, the Constitution has a lot of power for most Americans who, like, don't do things like come to the Brooklyn Commons and, like, hear, They're like, Brooklyn Talk Radio, like all the listeners of the show. <laughs> but for a lot of people in the world – in in this country, the Constitution is something that they like or they want to yes, like, and they don't know what's in it. Right. So the communists did that, right? Like the Communist Party, I mean, they well, right. And is by the way, I wasn't romanticizing. I just no. want to. No, I, I know you weren't. Romanticizing labor movement. I'm saying when it worked, yeah. it did that yeah. stuff. But the Communist Party knew. Yeah. Yes, I think it's very annoying. You'll get people who are like, you know, f the Constitution, slaveholders document, and they're right, as you said historically. But the question is, and this is so much of politics has become this. It's like. Um, it's a t it's take hot takery versus strategy like it's morality versus effectiveness so I don't particularly care the question is whether it can be subverted and framed in an effective way yeah. right and so I mean James Thompson was talking about the Constitution because he was a civil rights lawyer who had basically made his name in the local community for standing up for victims of police violence you know including a lot of people right. of color in Wichita and and so he was claiming the Constitution not as like oh I'm in favor of the Constitution like the way that like Bob Barr right right, right, right yeah Call back to Bob Barr. Like the li like the, there's a, there's a Constitution Party in America. Right. The right owns the Constitution, but you know James, you know James, yeah. James, you know y you stand up for the Fourteenth Amendment as the sort of Reconstruction era amendment that's an anti-slavery document that grounds, at least I think, can be read to ground fundamental human equality at the center of the American experiment, uh, and uh, that goes back to the Declaration of Independence. You use that, a la Frederick Douglass, right. and 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 it's a civil rights Constitution. Right. It's a it's Just a Constitution like that's a bedrock against class power. Against concentrations of power that undermine our equal, uh, our equal unalienable rights, and that's an argument that I think I don't know. That was that's interesting. So anyway, you, you well, no, I was going to say that the communist CPUSA did that right when they fought in the Spanish Civil War. Their their brigade was called the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, right? There is Paul Robeson saying battle for the Americas, right? The Americans. I'm, I'm a I love bit that. Of an I mean, whatever. We can disagree but on no. the tactics. Some people hate it. I, I, like I think it's stuff. good. Born like, look. I think Bruce Springsteen is another example, right? Although, nah, don't throw that one out. That's not. I'm, I, that's that, that no, doesn't wait, work. Wrong, well, wait, no, because wrong, he's wait, being sarcastic wrong. when he like. Born. I was gonna say he kind of uses the American flag, but but no, it's he, not that's, really because it's subversive and that's sarcastic. That's like Fight Club irony. That's just like, no, you really like to fight. Come on, Bruce loves America. He, he really does. Yeah, he, but he's critical of it. And yeah, if you read the lyrics. No, I think. Yeah. You, but it's isn't. I mean, the whole thing is indicting the American government. But that's the thing. You can be a great patriot. Anyway, we all. We, he's we indicting the government, but he loves the American course, idea. Yeah. yeah. He, he's a. Jer I mean, New Jersey is is America somewhat in a nutshell. But um, <laughs> deep cut. Okay. Um, like, 
I do think that, um, and yeah, I keep thinking that this also applies to the Bible, right, and to religion. And like, I'm an atheist. Well, I'm agnostic technically because I have like one percent. I'm better on the Constitution than on religion. I don't no, know you're not. Wait, I'm going to set you up. So great, you're going to be an expert in a second. Like, it's the same principle though, where people are like, oh, f religion. Who cares? Blah blah blah. It's it's a it's a you know it's a patriarchal oh, no, thing. It, well it's I'm like I'm yeah, it is. That, also, yeah. like Martin Luther King used it pretty effectively right. to organize against all that stuff. Right. I like that we're now ba- being like the new basis of left wing politics. In the United States is going Preach. to be centered on the Preach. Constitution and Christianity. And the Bible, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> no, that was your assumption because <laughs> there. I- look, what comes before uh, Christianity? You're welcome, Christians. Oh, the, uh, it's the Judaism? is it the religion that had the holiday that I forgot about the other day? Pa- Pesach. Yeah, that's a re- it's, that's the best holiday because it's like about uh, Did liberation. Did you seder? Um, well, this is how good Jews we are. Like, I think we're sedering after it even stops. Oh, is it tonight? I thought it was. How many days is it though? Yeah. Wait, Thank wait, you. it's over already. Thank I thought Passover. My, my <laughs> yeah, we my family has like shrimp at Passover dinner. That's my shiksa wife is trying to correct me on Passover. Um, so. Uh, I got so distracted by the, the I talk know the of days religion. That I, I know David Walker, is that the his name? The holidays I miss. Is that his name, David Walker? David Walker, the appeal to the... Uh, co- the guy who used religion. The black abolitionist? And, uh, yeah, he yeah. based it all, a lot of it on the Bible, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, okay. Oh, we want to talk about... That, oh, no, 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 I mean... 1820s deep cut. I wanted to, yeah, that was my goal this whole time. David Walker's great. I mean, David Walker... He's doing great stuff. David Walker... Amazing, David Walker is, you know, I'm hearing more and more things... I know, it's so great. ...about David Walker. But... No, David Walker's, um, you know, uh, appeal to the colored race of the world. Uh, His words, black not aboli- Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, that's in quotes. It's in italics. He uh, was a black abolitionist in Boston in uh, the 1820s, and this pamphlet was like sort of smuggled into the South. He was trying to get it in the hands of slaves and free blacks in the South. Kind of precipitated the Southern slaveholding effort to like censor the males. His fear that, you know, these words will get into the hands of slaveholders. Yeah, I mean, Walker's interesting because he says a lot of interesting things, but he definitely grounds it in Christianity. Yeah. And, I mean, he points out the hypocrisy of kind of, I mean, that's the thing. He points out the, and the, the failure of sort of slaveholding Christianity right. to sort of in any way approach its, you know, its stated intentions. Right. Yeah. I'm fine. I'll, I'll make a liberation theology argument. They, Christians may not like it if they know that I'm a secular Jew, but anyway, um, I'm flexible. Okay, so... Uh, you r- talk about something really important that I think we have to talk about, which because nobody's talking about it. Um, you write that, inst- uh, okay. You talk about this bifurcated coalition. I like that you printed out my article I know, I'm from, such like a nerd. No- from like November. Yeah, well, it's really, really good. <laughs> yeah. um, you talk about uh, on the one hand, there's a growing contempt for the white workers who have slowly drifted away from the Democratic Party. On the other, an essentially philanthropic, if not paternalistic, concern for the most vulnerable non-white workers who ostensibly remain within the Democratic camp. This has given us an elite liberal discourse that grows eloquent about questions of privilege and empathy, but cannot seem to imagine a politics of power and solidarity. It has given us a liberalism that adores means testing and looks askance at universal goods, not because universal goods are too expensive, but because they might benefit someone who isn't deservingly deprived. Okay, this is something I've seen a lot of, right? Right. This idea that um, you can't have universal programs because if a rich person gets something for free, uh, that's not fair, and and low-income people, the theory goes, are going to be really upset about it. So, sorry for repeating myself, people who listen to my radio show, but Again, Newt Gingrich didn't have the term like social security queen for a reason because right. everyone gets social security, right? right? So I think it's pretty clear to anyone who looks at policy that when you have universal programs, they're much less vulnerable to getting cut, right? No one's going to cut something that everyone gets because the wealthy people aren't going to want to get rid of that either, right? So do you really think that like people think that it's unfair? All of a sudden these people have a sense of like justice that they don't usually have? This is a bit of a leading question. Or do you think they're really against universal programs and try to to wokeify their argument? Well, like yeah. Like the one time they I care mean, about economics. They, I mean, I, I actually, I think it's. I think there are like different strands. I mean, if you actually want to get beyond the polemic on how I, I don't really. Democ- so no, yeah, let's you don't. Stay in the That's polemic. not what your business is. But whatever, I'm gonna do it. No, do like, it. I think there are different like strata within the Democratic Party that have different attitudes. I think there are some people that are ideologically hostile and materially hostile based on their interests and based on their beliefs to anything that is going to raise their taxes. 
And that's a that's a big chunk. Right. That's a really powerful chunk. And they're going to find any way to sort of talk about it by a, if they're Democrats, uh, right. they're, they'll either mention, oh, we can't raise taxes on the middle class like Hillary did, or they're going to like try to avoid even thinking about it in those terms because they don't want to have that conversation because they know they're going to be like a hit from the left on that. So there's some of those people. There's some people outright say it, then there's some people who dodge it. If we sort of move right. progressively from right to center, they're the outright like never raise taxes. Like they're the sort of hardcore neoliberal centrist, right? Oh, I need to know then there's, you know, we can never raise taxes on anybody, you know, except for maybe the ultra, huh, ultra rich, right. but not even, you know, some people don't even want to do that. But then moving to the middle, th- and those people, forget them. But then there are the other people who I do think are in some ways more interesting who think that, who have, who do sort of have this take that it's just, um, I mean, it is sort of mysterious. I'd like to, I'd actually like to have honest dialogue with somebody in this zone. I mean, I could think of some writers who kind of occupy this place who are like, Brent, no, here at debate. yeah, who like, who are just like, no, it's actually like, like they, some of it is like an aesthetic preference for complexity. I think there is a little bit of that, like the Vox style of politics, like, oh, we want, we want wonkery. But I think it's deeper than that. I think they think they, um, they want a politics that because is the f- philanthropic orientation, which I think is kind of pretty significant. They want to help the people who need help. They really believe in right. this. They're they're yeah. this. These are the sons and daughters of privilege. These are the people who grow. These are people who I went to school with my whole life. And I, you know, yeah. And like I think, I mean, maybe I'm one of them. I don't know. And I just am trying mm. you doing it in a different vocabulary. But like, there are people who think that their mission is to like uplift people who need help and they don't want any kind of universal program because it aff- or they're they're maybe even they don't uh, hate it but they just like don't know what to make of it they think it's this they blunt like instrument the, yeah. that's not about helping the people who need the help and that's what i'm going right. to try to do and and, not and they're just targeting. Like, i mean and that explains to be honest that's the mentality trying to be sympathetic i do think we should try to be sympathetic just enough to yeah, understand to some, to some not enough. not 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 to like weaken our opposition, but to understand so we can attack better. Right, exactly. But know your that enemy. explains like the charter school impulse too. It's the same kind of thing. It's like we want to help. We want to help these people right. who are vulnerable. It's like they're not. These people aren't. I have these charter school these friends. These people. These people. Uh oh, I just did that. No, I did it. Hey, I did the Robert E. Lee. These people. Just but they they want. They're not Guys robots. Come in. Sorry. Come in and move to. There's a center table. They're not robots who just like get off on like you know get high on like Taking burning teachers union cards yeah, or something. Public they education. yeah they they think they're helping and they think they're doing it because they want to make this immediate impact in the lives right. of the people who who immediately need it. Sure, like and it's, they'll it's, wait it's for the charity. revolution, it's, it's, but it's, they it's don't want to, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's philanthropy, and it's fundamentally reactionary because it's like it 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 exp- it, 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 it uh, presumes an unchangeable status right. quo of power right. and resources. What's I think the hardest thing to kind of – I think it's much easier to debate someone who's wealthy and privileged who, who makes that argument. I think what's interesting is when you have someone from an underserved community who's like been to the public schools – sees the failures of it, and then they come with that perspective, and they're like, well, I would love to live in a world where it's where we really right. work on public school, but right. I was in it, and it sucked, and so yeah. I, you know, in the yeah. meantime, until right. this comes. Anyway. Right. But, right. Um, no, no, and that's, I mean, and, and I mean, that is, a, a, on a generalizing that yeah. out beyond the education example, that is something that is a tool of the sort of Virgi- people who want to do the Virginia strategy is because that, I mean, that, that, that coalition is not, it's not just like a rich white coalition. Those are the people who are calling the shots, but it's important for them to kind of have a kind of um, some kind of an alliance. I mean, I think they really see it. I mean, I, this is where, you know, we can, again, debate terms. I really don't like this term ally because it presumes that it's like there are these two different groups that are unbridgeable and have no right. interest beyond like this, like one moment where they're together. But and I like I allyship. I don't ever want to give up that word. So sorry. Do I you? Okay, yeah, well, right. whatever. I'm I kidding. Don't know. I think oh. it's no. Oh, okay. Okay. No. Okay. Are you kidding? Right. No. Whatever. But I think it's like, I think I like solidarity over yeah. allies or whatever because it's like, no, we're so different. We can't be together. We can't, we have no, we have no commonality. Right. Um, and they, so the, yeah, they. Affinity group. Yeah, anyway, whatever. But I think that's the kind of that that those are the kind of arguments that that, that this kind of um, vision of politics will deploy right. aggressively because they know it's hard to um, uh, it's hard to fight back when people are saying, look, look, the current system is so messed, right. is so is so bad, the right is so dangerous. All we can do is this right. one tangible thing, and that would be better than not doing it. Right. And, well, and I think there's also a danger, right? Because we look at biography kind of, and we look at identity as as being these like it's very it's pretty infantilizing right but it's like oh this person who is of a certain group has this idea so therefore they are right and they are righteous and they are woke and uh, people who aren't from that group can't say anything about it but that of course flattens these different groups into monoliths right like black people have ranges of politics like this is one of the things that drives me crazy it's like people present it as like 
white people, we have all these different politics, right? Right. Um, but but people of color, there's just one. There's like one position. Yeah, when, you, when you say class, it's almost like assume you're talking about just white people. Oh yeah, totally. Right? As if there's like yeah. no class politics in right. a, outside of white people in and the United States. And yeah. of course, the irony is that when like Bernie Sanders, not to bring it back to him, but when he talks about the working class and people like, how dare you just talk about white working class? I'm like, do you realize that that the tell you just did? You showed your hand big time. He didn't say white working class. Right. It's so complicated because I mean, there is like a, there is some truth to this idea that like working class gets like raced as white like there is some truth to because if it, when, when you when you read like the new york times and like you know certain kind of like moderate commentate you know the david brooks is right. when they talk about like we need to, like working class voters feel left behind they're absolutely talking about white people and so they do that and then that kind of becomes embedded sure, and then right. it, it does so there's like some legitimacy to that critique that when you say working class you mean white people but it's like that's not actually true. Right. So we shouldn't we shouldn't like re- let David Brooks define our terms right. for us. Right. And I don't think Sanders is like a is no. Brook, a Brooksian. No. Um, but I think that people. I want to open up for questions. But maybe you could I mean do. You l- saw the Imolaki ad. I mean, that was that was like the most powerful presidential. Uh, adver- I mean, the, the the tomato grower, the tomato workers in Imolaki, Florida. Oh, that yeah, Bernie yeah. Bernie did yeah. his campaign where he like. He, you know, he talks about the, the sort of exploitation, these like heavily uh, like Latino right. workforce in South Florida that are, you know, that were, you know, making like starvation wages right. and were being brutalized by their employees. And, you know, there was like a little bit of a campaign. Sanders got involved. I don't know how important he really was. But the point is he was using this as a representative Very instance of, of how, uh, you know, the working class, you know, it was a fundamentally a working class. It was an ad about the exploitation of a working class, right. which was like not white at all. And and he literally rises to this crescendo where he's like, "Who profits from this? Exp- right. I can't do a Bernie. Who profits from this exploitation?" Thank you. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, and I mean, and that's like that's the working class. That's the that's the Neva- that's the good Bernie. Nevada. That's the that's the Nevada coalition that we need, and that's there. It's yeah. there. It's there for the taking. I, I, except the Virginians are in the way, like Robert E. Lee. Get him out of here. Get him out. <laughs> so now Bernie would have won. True or false? Go. <laughs> True. Why? What do you say to how can how do you? Oh, I thought this was like the end. Like that's usually how we go out. Just Bernie would have won. Just oh, like we, we sort of repeat it at night. Oh, Father, I my soul yeah, to whatever. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Uh, if the I don't. Kingdom yeah. come, thy will Thank be you. done. Bernie oh, would have oh, yeah. won. Exactly. Oh, oh, that's pretty good. That's pretty don't good. Don't pretend. I should have right. saved that for the radio. I know. Yeah. Man, no, we'll, we'll get it up there. But that's great. You yeah. didn't even know. It. Was that a fake or were you? No, I just came up with it. I don't know why I even know that much of the Lord's Prayer. That is, that's because you're a closet. You're a closet Christian. Yeah. Um. So. <laughs> what would you say? There are a couple different arguments, and we'll open up to, que- to questions. But there are a couple different arguments about the Bernie would have won thing, right? That Does I've it heard. Ma- I mean, okay, yeah. Okay, I yeah. think here's where I think it matters. Yes. Look, it look, does we matter. can relitigate the primary. Blah blah blah. That, that's stupid. Um, why does it matter? Because it means it means. I mean, again, to go to what I've been saying this whole time, it goes back to this idea of a, of a Nevada coalition. Right. It goes back to like if you say saying Bernie won would have won points to the possibility of a political struggle right. that can defeat right wing power yes. on the basis of uh, a kind of uh, uh, on the basis of some sort of common interest. And it's applicable to right now and moving forward, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's a rejection of a sort of a fatalism about a the kind of implacable power of white supremacy. Look, you don't have to underestimate the power of white supremacy in the United States in order to real to sort of believe that it can be beaten. Frederick Douglass never underestimated right. the power of white supremacy in the United States. It's extremely powerful. But it, it, it can be beaten. It can be beaten. It was beaten in the election of 1860. It was beaten in the ele- to go history. No I one talks about that anymore. I was a- teaching at the election. They were doing I mean, wonderful. Okay, they were doing here, wonderful here's things. Here's a fact I ta- taught my kids today. You know that, that word miscegenation? Yeah. It's a creepy word. I hate that word. Do you know where it came from? The campaign of eight is you know, intermarriage, whatever. It came sex, from whatever. the campaign or Re- sex, breeding. whatever. It came from the I campaign in eighteen sixty four when the Northern Democrats were trying to make like the most appalling, virulently racist white supremacist arguments against Lincoln on behalf of McClellan, you know, uh, uh, against Lincoln's war of emancipation. And they grounded everything. They threw everything into white supremacy. And they lost. They lost in a landslide. And, you know, the point is not that white supremacy isn't powerful; it's super powerful. The point, but the but it can be beaten. It sometimes it wins, sometimes it loses. And Bernie would have won is to in response to at least it's a response to a lot of things. But one response it's it's one insistence against the idea that like there was a sort of fi- this 
this the, the Trump wave was irresistible right. because it summoned some kind of demon of white supremacy that can never ever be beaten. Right. I mean, if you believe that, you know, we really should move to Canada. You might we as really well become a yoga instructor. That's what Becky yeah. Bond said. She said if you think she was a Bernie organizer, yeah. she goes if you think that that. Trump couldn't have been beaten. And here's the irony. People who make that argument, they're also the same people who constantly remind us that Hillary won the popular vote. So they're actually contradicting themselves, right? But um, I think that the Bernie would have won thing, the reason it's important, and I'll admit it's probably not the most useful thing if I, we want to have a dialogue. That doesn't stop me from wearing a pen that yeah, says no, Bernie would have won. I, I really hate or you go, from having something on your wall at a party, for probably, instance, probably where people <laughs> pose in front of it and probably says we should, we, should, we should start to let it go. I hate to admit that. Uh, well, yes and no. But... I think the reason it's not relitigating the primary is because it is exactly like determining a blueprint for moving forward. And again, if you think that Bernie's plan was not uh, feasible or wouldn't have won, then then uh, clearly we can't do any of the things he, he did, right? And obviously Bernie's like a proxy for, for things, but whether or not you, you – do you, do you respond to white supremacy by saying um, nothing? In which case, guess where the angry white people go? To Trump? I mean, I don't understand this. Or do you say, hey, angry white people, don't go to Trump. Let me explain to you who you really should be angry at. By the way, I'll also offer you the same programs that I offer people of color, right? So there's this idea that, like, like making the case to white people, you're somehow then depriving people of color of their rights. But Sanders' programs go to everyone. Like, I don't, right. I don't really so understand. So do you want a, ma do you want a majority to right. topple Right, right, you know, right wing right. power in the United States. Do you actually want it, and that that can deliver universal distribu right. redistributive goods to all Americans? Do well, you they want don't. That? That's I think yeah. so many of them don't. So, um, the the major arguments I've heard about Bernie would would not have won are that he's Jewish, which that's fine if you want to say that. Except if you want to say that, then you can't call me sexist if I say that that's why Hillary wouldn't have won, which I don't say. I'm lo I'm in a swamp. Sorry. Here. Wait, there's sex. What? Okay. Anyway, yeah. I'm just I get it. Basically, I get it, I get every it. opportunity I have, I like to point out the hypocrisy of the uh, the uh, of the Bernie wouldn't have won camp. But it's like that he's Jewish and that there's this rape thing, and we can talk about this on another show. He wrote an essay that was critical of the fact that we have that there are rape fantasies in society. I don't know if you guys read this, and that he had a love child, <laughs> no, and no, then he went to the Soviet Union. I did. It's whatever. He went to the Soviet Union for his um, honeymoon. honeymoon. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I don't think I mean, that any rules. of these. Yeah, it kind of does. Yeah. Um, I don't really think that any of these things are insurmountable. I think that having written an essay critical of rape, uh, not of rape fantasies, not not shaming anyone, but critical of, of a society in which they, in which they're common, I don't think that that would have disqualified someone running against the guy who then we found out said that he liked to, you know, grab women by the pussy, right? So. Um, you really want to? You really want to do this counterfactual history? I do. Yeah. You're of like course. my students who are like, oh. If 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 Lee had 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 held the high ground yeah, on the second you know day what? of Gettysburg, you know uh, then this whole civil yeah, war would have been different. Yeah, I know. And like yeah. Stephen Jay Gould, yeah. I saw him speak at Wesleyan, and he talked about contingency and non-directional, uh, non-predictable, unpredictable directionality. And it's I get it; it's a counterfactual. But don't you think sometimes that's such a cop out? Of course, it's a counterfactual. No, no, you need to understand. And, under, and you, you have are to have a historian, not a philosopher. If you do causality, you have to have counterfactuals. But uh, and I do causality. I, like I, I, I want to stick with I want to stick with not. The, for the sure, purpose sure. of politics, I want to stick with the not counterfactual, with the what is the political meaning of yeah. Bernie would have won now. Yeah. And I think the political yeah, meaning is, is forward, not backward. The political meaning is not about um, – I mean, th I mean, this is – and this is – I mean, you could argue maybe we should just stop saying it altogether. But the to the extent that there is this, like, hardcore faction of kind of corporate Democrats that, like, really – that are that are coming up with both structural and, you know, uh, Russia-driven explanations right. for Clinton's defeat – um, Which does not convert, does not excite yeah. anyone, right? Then no it, you know, I think it's useful to, to bash them with that. I mean, fundamentally though, it's about the, the the. I mean, this is what the whole Bernie campaign was about to to, to me. What the legacy is? It's the camp. It's a, it's about possibility. It's about the possibility of, of wanting more from our political system. Frederick Douglass quote. Cut to the Frederick Douglass quote. Ooh. Power concedes nothing. Power concedes nothing without a demand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. If there is no struggle, there is no. Pro <laughs> getting the things progress. Yes, uh, okay, good, cool. good, good. Okay, so here I'm gonna I'm gonna read a quote and then I'm gonna open. We're it dying up, right? on the raft and we're like trading Frederick Douglass quotes back to each other as we the slowly Titanic? expire in the icy waters of the I North survive. Atlantic. Sorry, yeah, I do. Women yeah, live my last words are yeah, yeah. Your last words are Bernie would have won, but maybe we shouldn't say that. Okay, so here's a quote. This is why I think that we do need to 
fine. We don't have to say Bernie would have won, but we can say if you say Bernie wouldn't have won, you're a terrible person. That's that's useful. I think we can both agree, right? Uh, Just what? kidding. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Here's why we have to, I think, talk about the win how electable Sanders was, and we can frame it in a way. We don't have to say Sanders. We You're can not say done with this. Any secular <laughs> Jew from Brooklyn with a strong New York accent. I love that you Vermont. are you are more hardcore in this than me. I love this. Oh yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. So here's why I think we need to talk about it. Ready? Jennifer Palmieri. Do you know her? Sh she is. She's Clinton's um, comms director. She was Clinton's comms director. Not to be confused with Sally Albright, who worked for Clinton comms in 08. In case you wonder why uh, Clinton lost. So she said she was on Chuck. She was on Meet the Press. Uh, Jen pa Jennifer Palmieri, bless her heart, after Clinton lost. And, and Chuck Todd was like, I bet you're wondering where the excitement was before the on November 8th, because he shows all these protests that are happening. And she's like, it's not a very helpful question. It was like, actually, my heart went out to her. She's still processing it. Um, and she was talking about these, you know, all the protests, all the anti-Trump stuff. And she says to Chuck Todd, you are wrong to look at these crowds and think everyone wants $15 an hour. Don't assume the answer to big crowds is moving policy to the left. I think the answer to big crowds is engaging as much as you can and being as supportive as you can. What these people want, these engaging people. Engaging yeah. as much as you can? Yeah. What these people want, it's all about identity on our side now. They want these to. These people. That's the theme yeah. of the night. Yeah, I know. They, this episode will be called These People yeah. with, with Matt Carp and Katie Alper and Ben people. Norton and Erskine. Um, they want to show he does not support me. I support refugees. I support immigrants in my neighborhood. I want to defend you. Women who are rejecting Nordstrom's and Neiman Marcus, this is power to them. <laughs> I think it's our own version of identity <laughs> politics on the left that's more empowering and that's a safer place to be. Safer for whom, first of all. But I love this idea that you have immigrants. I love the Nord Nordstrom's and Neiman Marcus. I mean, it's so funny about what the Democratic Party's become. I don't but know how many times on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so you no finish no. your thought. What I, this is like an, um, a Ed Rendell, Robert E. Lee slaveholder yeah. moment. Jen Palmieri, also a slaveholder, where they say the stuff that you think that they don't say out loud. She's literally yeah. saying she's weaponizing identity politics, literally, to yeah. say don't do 15 an hour. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's ridiculous. And that's, I mean, that r that is the sort of hard, that is the hardcore of, I mean, she's the servant of the sort of the most reactionary uh, instincts within the party. I mean, but I think what's so funny is like the way this sort of like the class pres presuppositions like slip out just like in this almost casual way. She's like, women are saying no to Neiman Marcus. Like, like most women like in America like Can have any having right. clue what Neiman Marcus right. is or what Most relationship they have no to it. To anyway. Can you believe it? They said no to Nordstrom. Now things are getting serious. I mean, my favorite thing, my favorite tick of the press, people have, people have talked about this, so I'm, but I was noticing this for a long time. So I thought about it since somebody else tweeted it maybe, I don't know, is this comparison, this analogy that a lot of like pundits and like Democrat types have do doing in regard to Medicare for all uh, and Obamacare. It's like, we just renovated, you know, we, we oh. like, how can you renovate the, I mean, this, this, this has come yeah, up a bunch of times. How can you window, renovate yeah. the kitchen when you've, uh, when you, when somebody's trying to set your porch on fire? Right. That's like the idea. It's like, no, defend Obamacare. Don't renovate the kitchen. But, but 538 on their podcast before the election was like, we just redid the kitchen. You're telling me we need to do it again now? American voters are having none of that. And it's like this, just like this bedrock, this like Fairfax, that is so Fairfax County. Like redoing your kitchen is like the basic analogy right, by right, which right. we're going to understand how politics happens. But that's like literally, th this is unthinking. It's not Nordstrom, Neiman Marcus. Re I mean, this is the right. suburbanization of right, everything. Yeah. This is the Montgomery mollification. Sorry, shout out to Montgomery County, uh, Maryland, of, of American politics. On and, and this is supposedly the progressive party that's doing it. It is, it's revolting. Sorry. It is revolting. Yeah. Uh, there, I got you with me. Yeah. You get you. You're just it as judgmental is, as yeah, I am. That's yeah. what I want to do. I was baiting you. Um, Medicare for all. Literally, there are thirty million. There are almost thirty million people who don't have insurance. They get sick. They go bankrupt or they die. Yeah. And that's redoing the kitchen. Yeah, it Sorry. is. Yeah. Uh, it's redoing the kitchen. No, it's no. like they want. They are like. Um, oh, I'm trying to think of a, what they're advocating for. It's like the house is is crushing people. There are people under the house that are dying. <laughs> yeah. Right. The house is like they're it's sinking, and they're like, why it's do you like want to fix the foundation? We just put it's, in it's these. It's like Wizard of Oz, right? Yes, That's the, the uninsured, so we <gasps> need to, yeah, exactly. You don't even it's know that like the episode that. I'm behind on posting, we talk about the Wizard of Oz, so weird. Ooh. But um, Adam Gaffney was on the show. He's a doctor and a <laughs> single-payer advocate. Is and he, he single? says, I don't know, Adam, <laughs> he said, people will tell you that you that something you can't do something often are the people who don't want to do something. And that's what he was saying about, right. about single-payer. Yeah. So I, I listened to that episode, I oh think. Oh, yeah. yeah. You think? He should have yeah. stuck with you. Big no, no, yeah. yeah. 
You heard my he dad. He was in a bunch of interviews. No, but he was with you. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. And then I, I played my dad, who is a doctor who looks like Einstein. I asked him if single payer would work. He said yes. And I said, how do you know? Because he's a psychiatrist. I wanted to explain that. He didn't know I was filming him. And he was like, because I know. Bernie told me. Bernie texted me. It was very funny. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you guys so much. Harp, thank you so much. Matt Harp. Thanks, Katie. Thank you. Thank you. Will be thank done. you. Thank you. Say, say okay. it with me. Thy kingdom, kingdom come, come thy will, will be done. done. Bernie, Bernie would have won. won.